everyone today the Juneteenth order June 19th 1865 the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States all slaves are free this involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness, either there or elsewhere. Freedom was very important to them. Here in Galveston, you're at ground zero of where the Juneteenth message began, and really on sacred ground. It's more than just a celebration. A matter of pride and joy and empowerment in my community. Once they were rejoined with their families, the hard work of becoming economically self-sufficient went into play. The 40 acres promise was made, but unfortunately it was not kept. Is the American dream for me, or is it only for people who don't look like me? A lot of people, they look at slavery as, as if it didn't happen. No one can say, oh, that's not my history. No, it is. We all fall into that history. Juneteenth, 1865 to 2022. The pursuit of economic equality. Galveston, Texas, has long been one of the largest ports in the United States and is still thriving today with tourism and cruise ships. Yeah, this coastal town was once the largest city in Texas thanks to commercial business. But instead of cruise ships, slave ships used to dock at this very location. The economy of the 1800s depended on rice, cotton, and sugarcane plantations. Plantation owners relied on slave labor. So much so, they actually ignored the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863 until June 19th, 1865. Juneteenth is the date, June 19th, 1865, when Major General Gordon Granger issued General Order 
number three here in Galveston, which stated in the first sentence that all slaves are free, and in the second sentence, this involves an absolute equality. And it happened here on the southwest corner of 22nd and Strand in Galveston at the Osterman, as some pronounce Osterman for their owners was approximately $4 billion. It's estimated that the entire wealth of the United States at that point was approximately 16 to $17 billion. The wealth that was embodied in enslaved human beings was essentially one quarter of the total wealth of the United States. I mean, Texas is an interesting one, too. You know, you got more land if you had more enslaved people to put on it. Rice University is where the past meets the present. The founder of the university, William Marsh Rice, was a wealthy man and a slave owner himself. Today, the university is acknowledging and attempting to right some of William Rice's wrongs by moving his monument and continuing important research and work in the area of African-American studies. So we're here in Fontaine Library, which is the central library at Rice University. We have been using ship manifests, namely, to see how many people were transported to the Texas Gold Coast in the 1800s. This is to add information to the Slave Voyages database. Each individual enslaved person gets their own entry. Here is Virginia. She's listed as a female, 30 years old. Usually where that class column is, it's usually talking about skin color. Here are her two daughters, Louisa, seven years old, and Amelia, two years old. We told about where people came from, where they were taken, how many people were involved, and it helped segments of the population in America you know, to trace their history, tell their stories, a population that had been denied that right for many, many years. Professor Dr. Daniel Dominguez recruits student researchers like Victoria and Caitlin to gather, collect, and document slave ships destined for Texas. Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. And click there. You see the pathway a description, short description of it, and you can click read more to get all the details. Every ship that we've 
documented are coming from either New Orleans, Mobile, or Savannah, with New Orleans being where the vast majority of, uh, were sailing from. Each dot represented voyage. They took about 33 hours, according to some newspaper sources. This was just a quick turnaround back and forth. Galveston definitely was the largest port, the most active, but by far not the only one. We have documented at least 27 ports along the Gulf Coast. Ports as far south as the Rio Grande Valley and Brownsville. I'm actually from Brownsville, Texas, and I've never heard of any of this history there. This was another one of the manifests that we came across during our research. The shipper or owner, technically the enslaver, his name is Mirabeau Lamar, and if that sounds familiar, it's because he was the uh, second president of the Republic of Texas. His name is on street signs and counties and schools. Universities, yeah. Universities. Nearly 40% of the enslaved people transported to the Texas coast were actually infants or children. They were listed on these manifests by themselves, and it's, it's really, honestly, heartbreaking. And also very elderly people. We've seen people in their 90s, even at the 100. Not only were enslavers in Texas really focused on the productive aspect of slavery, but also the reproductive aspect of slavery, and how they were hoping that they could continue growing the numbers of enslaved people without having to transport them. The impacts of those voyages and the slave trade themselves, they're still evident today. Oh yes, uh, all around us, and not just in terms of uh, our social and economic disparities, it's in our legacy, in our heritage, right? in some of the buildings we enter, walk, people that we meet. Many enslaved people came from West Africa. They went through unspeakable treatment in what are known as slave dungeons and slave castles. Elmina Castle in Ghana can be toured today. They were captured from near and far. Some were even captured and brought from different countries. Some had to walk several kilometers down here. Some had to walk for not less than two weeks before getting to the coasts. And here's a look at what's called the House of Slaves in Senegal's Gore Island. This is the favorite dog of Noritan. And the reason why they called it the dog Noritan was that back in the slavery days, once the slaves put one step out, they never come back. And right here on Pier 21, a middle passage marker commemorating Africans taken from their homeland and brought here to Galveston, many of whom died along the way. I think the primary way in which human beings were bought and sold, though, was at formal auction sites. That's not the exclusive way, but there were formal auction sites where people would bid on uh, human property. If you go back and review newspapers, you can read advertisements for the many slave sales or, or sales of Negroes or enslaved people. That's why we refer to it as chattel slavery, in the sense that individuals who were owned were owned and treated no differently from, uh, say, the possession of cattle. And individuals were assigned a value on the moment of their birth, on the way uh, to their death. It was property everyone recognized had value. So this was an asset that families could control generation over generation over generation, which is another way of building wealth. The value of an individual was around $1,000. Women were perceived as valuable because they could produce more enslaved people. On the other hand, the men would be more likely to be in the artisanal category 
Historians say the Sidner Slave Auction House was the largest in the 1850s, and it stood on this block. The very same block where the Absolute Equality mural now honors the true meaning of Juneteenth. Now go ahead and sing one of those steamboat songs. You were singing so next to you go to work. Yeah. I think I am the Captain Cobble. Blue, I blue. On the road, a blue cold, loud and wonderful. Oh, on the road, way back in slavery times, I would stand at the Negro of Free and brought them hound in and brought three niggas. We don't hound one way, niggas, you know. Right across, that's a picture. They take them niggas to put them on, and put them on a log, leave them down face, and hook them. Let them be fallen in frame. Then they take my down to put them in jail. After Juneteenth, the Reconstruction era began, where formerly enslaved blacks immediately became politicians. Matthew Gaines was a senator. George T. Ruby was a senator actually elected here in Galveston in 1869. They even became sheriffs in some areas and opened businesses, moving to areas like Houston to build their own communities like the 3rd, 4th, and 5th wards. They also fought to get their education since slaves were not allowed to read or write. Fifty miles outside of Houston, off Highway 290, is the campus of Prairie View A&M University. It was founded during Reconstruction in 1876, 11 years after Juneteenth. Prairie View A&M is a direct result of Juneteenth. So we get our first graduates like in the 1880s. This first generation went out and the majority of them became educators because it was a need in the African-American community during this time to educate the formerly enslaved who didn't know how to read or write or count. The land where Prairie View sits was once home to Alta Vista Plantation, spread over 3,000 acres with three to 400 slaves. And recently something quite rare happened. The descendants of the plantation owners reached out to the university, wanting to collaborate with students and staff in the push for social and racial equality. Becky Vanderslice and her daughters, Allison and Mara, are descendants of Jared Kirby, who was the master of the plantation from 1849 to 1865. Why do you decide to openly talk about this very uncomfortable part of your family history? I felt it was really important to stand up and um, declare this really did happen and my family was part of it and to acknowledge that when she was about nine years old becky remembers her grandmother in houston showing her a probate document listing the names of slaves at alta vista plantation along with their ages the document verifying a difficult truth for the family it's made me very angry it's made me very sad i think it's also made me more empathetic becky the family matriarch says members of her church in Colorado encouraged her to reach out to the university. I heard you say in an interview you were afraid to contact the university. Why? I did not know how I'd be received. 
I didn't know who to speak to. She ended up talking to the right person. Phyllis Earls is the University Library Archivist. She vividly remembers that first conversation. Then she started talking about the Kirby family. And then she said, I'm one of the descendants. And I remember her saying that, um, I don't, I want to talk to you, but I wasn't sure how I'll be received. I said, I've been waiting for someone from the Kirby family to call. Oh, 8,000 acres? 8,000 acres. Of land. The three women finally visited the Prairie U campus in May. A family with a complicated past now joining the conversation about bringing people together. I think so important that we come forward to talk about what really happened. And I think to be a model for other white families that could partner with historic black colleges and universities and others to tell the fullness of this story. And frankly, we're seeing a movement in our country with laws passed in legislatures across the country trying to have us stop having these conversations, to make it harder for people to have these conversations. I think we should be doing more of it, and especially when it's uncomfortable. I think it helps you grow and stretch, and I hope it can mean that we can be better partners and community members with all of the people in our communities. Juneteenth ended slavery, but it meant newly free Texans would begin their pursuit of economic equality with practically nothing. A woman who was interviewed when she was 105 in the 1930s, and she was a slave on the Alta Vista plantation, and she tells a story when she was a slave, she never had shoes. So, you know, our, our relative never gave shoes. When she got her first pair of shoes, when she, after emancipation, when she was freed, she said that she sometimes hate to wear them and she would just look at them with pride. And so I feel like that just really captures how horrific the, and how limited um, the experience was when they were, were slaves. And then, you know, just the, the mundane everyday things that became such amazing um, uh, examples of, of what they were then able to have after emancipation. Conversely, According to the Texas A&M Board of Trustees records, the Kirby family sold Alta Vista Plantation to the state of Texas in 1876 for $15,787. That's about $426,000 in today's money. I mean, we started out with this horrific history of people being enslaved, and now it's a place of opportunity for hundreds and thousands, well, thousands of African-American students that now on this very land are able to build their dreams for their own careers and their own families. And so I think we're very proud to see that outcome. But really, that's what I hope our story is. It's a very American story. Um, and we're always trying to, you know, move in the progress of social and racial justice and equality as we're trying to perfect our country. So to me, it's just like a little slice of, of our country's history. Honorable Abraham Lincoln, I have before me in my office a weeping mother, a Christian woman, whose oldest son has been sold as a slave in Houston, Texas, having been captured in the city of Galveston with the 42nd Regiment. Her agony is intense. He was born free in Boston. He was sold for the pitiful sum of $47. His cousin... Charles G. Amos, 16 years old, was sold at the same time. The awful system that glories in making merchandise of God's poor men and women. Can anything be done 
for this poor, suffering, praying Christian woman? Do I presume in saying you ought to do something? Would to God I had the power, I would use it. Yours truly, John L. Barber. Granger was in Galveston in Texas for about a month. I think what really happened was he sent his troops throughout uh, East Texas to uh, just going plantation to plantation, making the announcement, you know, to all the slaves that you are now free. And you start to see uh, slaves uh, uh, leaving the plantations. It is just so incredibly moving to read their accounts and, and what that day was like. That Freedom Day is what they call it. Everybody was so excited and, and jubilant. In the decades following Juneteenth, formerly enslaved Texans immediately began holding Freedom Day celebrations every year. It wasn't called Juneteenth right away. The Emancipation Day celebrations would consist of barbecues, music from live bands, parades with fully decorated carriages, prayer services, and an overall celebration full of all the pomp and circumstance. A red punch or drink was a must, as well as other red foods like watermelon, strawberry, red beans and rice, and red velvet cake. The color red representing the blood shed of the enslaved. I was about nine, ten years old, maybe more. Stayed right there. We didn't know where to go. Mom and them didn't know where to go. You see, after she broke, just turned, just like he turned something out, you know. Didn't know where to go. That's just where he stayed. Turned us out just like, you know, you turn out cattle. <laughs> I say, didn't know where to go. And so once they were rejoined with their families, the hard work of becoming uh, economically self-sufficient Went into play. Freed slaves had nothing and needed everything. Most of all, work and the means to earn an income. The Freedmen's Bureau played an important part in this because they negotiated work contracts for enslaved people uh, in a sharecropper situation. And while the Freedmen's Bureau Act of March 1865 formalized government aid to freed slaves, it made no provision for land. January 16, 1865, six months ahead of Juneteenth and Emancipation Day, General Order Number 15 is issued, reserving land for freed families in 40-acre tracts to inhabit land along the southeastern seaboard. Any idea how many freed slaves in this area were able to get at least 40 acres? None. Order number 15, most commonly known as 40 acres and a mule. The islands from Charleston, south, the abandoned rice fields along the rivers for 30 miles back from the sea, and the country bordering the St. John's River, Florida, are reserved and set apart for the settlement of the Negroes so that each family shall have a plot of not more than 40 acres of tillable ground. Just how much is 40 acres? Imagine about 30 football fields side by side. After President Lincoln's death, President Andrew Johnson revoked Order Number 15, denying African Americans land and the ability to gain economic independence after emancipation. So as a consequence, none of the four million formerly enslaved received the promised 40-acre land grant. So it was a promise that was, was not kept. It, it was devastating. They tried their best not to actually leave. But they were compelled to do so, ultimately. A promise broken. 
and 150 years later, a proposed plan to make amends. Leading up to the Civil War, slavery solidified the relatively young state of Texas with the Old South, connecting it to states as far away as the Carolinas, home to well-established ports and plantations. North Carolina, the Tar Heel State, where the capital city boasts native sons, and the civil rights icon, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. There's also Bennett Place, the site of the largest surrender of Confederate troops. And 30 miles north is historic Stagville. A plantation once so big, it spanned across three counties. It's where we connect with the native Texan, folklorist and lecturer Kirsten Mullen, and her husband, Duke University economist and scholar, Dr. William Darity. It is by no coincidence we meet at this former plantation. There were 900 enslaved people here. The two contend there is a great debt owed. Together, they have researched and written extensively about it. The title of the book is From Here to Equality. Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. And it makes a strong case for acknowledgement, redress, and financial restitution. It should never have happened. But because it happened, and because we know how it came about, we have the obligation to do something about it. That something is reparations. We live in a world where money is often the way that we acknowledge um, harm. Harm that did not end with slavery, but also became the law of the land with Jim Crow. Nearly 100 years of legal segregation, of the period of white terror, when black people began to assert themselves, either through um, the acquisition of land or businesses or just having accumulated some capital. This played out all across the country, from what's now known as Black Wall Street in Tulsa to North Carolina and Texas. Decades of progress, robbed and ruined. And as time passed, legal segregation continued to fuel racism with discriminatory practices and federal policies. The federal government's actions and practices have created the racial wealth gap, and it is the federal government that's the culpable party. We now say that it amounts to approximately $350,000 per person, and that adds up to a total of approximately $14 trillion. Given our estimate that there are about 40 million living black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. And they propose the government pay direct cash payments, not programs. It's worked for others. The German government compensates Holocaust survivors, and according to the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, Negotiations since 1952 have led to Germany paying $90 billion to Holocaust survivors. In the United States, surviving Japanese Americans held in internment camps during World War II were awarded money in 1988 by the United States government in one-time cash payments of $20,000 each. Why hasn't it happened for black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here? And I think our answer is it's good old-fashioned American racism. But more attitudes are shifting, especially after the past two decades. 
I can't think of any other time when so many people with different uh, understandings of American history um, have come together to talk about reparations. The H.R. 40 bill establishes the commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans, including appropriate remedies to present to the U.S. Congress. The number 40 represents the unfulfilled promise the U.S. government made to freed slaves to be granted 40 acres of land. U.S. Congressman John Conyers introduced the bill and for three decades championed it before his passing. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee reintroduced the bill in early 2021 and is now a sponsor. It has since been approved by a House Judiciary Committee, but the full House has yet to vote on it. I feel that we are in the midst of the most critical period in our nation, and the economic problem is probably the most serious problem confronting the Negro community. And I might say the most serious problem confronting poor people generally. Fast forward decades later, and the racial wealth gap is still an issue, as the Federal Reserve pointed out in the 2019 survey of consumer finances. The survey defines wealth as the difference between families, gross assets, and their liabilities. They looked at the median or typical household within different racial groups, as well as the mean or the average among households citing the gap had not improved much over time. Yeah, we have uh, 10 acres remaining. Majestic oak trees line the grounds and surround the Hitchcock home now owned by businessman and historian Sam Collins. So being here at Stringfellow Orchards is like walking on sacred ground. These trees witness those 30 men working here alongside Mr. Stringfellow. So they often say if walls could talk, if trees could talk. It's land that was once an operational 30-acre orchard, Stringfellow Orchards. Henry Morton Stringfellow was a Confederate soldier that was ordered to Galveston uh, after the Civil War ended. Uh, he started an orchard on the island and eventually moved here on the mainland in the 1880s. The main house at Stringfellow Orchards with its historic gingerbread detailing and wraparound porch are indicative of the time it was built. A time when former enslaved men worked the land, helping to cultivate the trees and in return paid a fair wage. Stringfellow chose to pay the 30 black men working here a dollar a day each. That wage was twice as much as they could find anywhere else. This went against other white landowners' hiring practices. They often relied on sharecropping and in some cases, convict labor leases. Blacks were often unjustly arrested and convicted only to be farmed out and provide free labor to former plantation owners. But Stringfellow did not conform. Even though there was social pressure on him to pay less, he chose to pay more. And helped to provide a pathway to those seeking economic freedom. Welcome to Emancipation Park in Houston's Third Ward. This year, the park is celebrating its 150th anniversary. It was created as a place for former slaves to commemorate their newly found freedom. With its rich history, it's not only the oldest park in Houston, it's the oldest park in the state of Texas. It is a park that's nestled in the heart of a historic neighborhood. The land was purchased by the former enslaved uh, people in the community under the leadership of Reverend Yates. I'm a great-granddaughter 
of Reverend Jack Yates. At each corner of the park, we have something that tells you about the history of that particular founder and their contribution to the community during their lifetime. They pulled together $800 to purchase the original 10 acres that we now call Emancipation Park. And they did this to celebrate freedom. The celebrations were a time when the people in the community came together, the families and the churches and everyone, because freedom was very important to them, and Juneteenth was very important to them. My first thing is Gertrude Jane Holiday Stone. That's first, middle, and last. My first recollection with being involved with the Emancipation Park was in the 1940s. Now, in the building where we are now, this is where my junior, senior prom took place. It's a big difference from then until now. As the formerly enslaved began establishing their new lives, many sought to establish communities away from plantation life. These areas were unoccupied and usually more flood-prone, and the new names for the communities often reflected the hope of emancipation, such as Freedmanstown in Houston's Fourth Ward. Founded in 1865, the residents here built schools, churches, and even the bricks on the roads, which still exist today. Some of the original homes are also intact, passed along through generations. Black communities also developed on the north side of Houston. In one area, the Wright Land Company secured the land and did their own financing, which made it possible for people with small incomes to become homeowners. And by 1915, for the population of 600, Independence Heights became the first African-American municipality in the state of Texas. In Third Ward, homes known as shotgun houses have been restored through arts and education thanks to the organization Project Row House. Slaves brought the row house design from West Africa, passing along the skills through generations. I'm trying to revitalize and bring the community back to the greatness that it once had when uh, there was business districts in Fifth Ward and uh, all the doctors, lawyers, professors, you know, business owners, everybody lived here. I consider myself a social impact developer. Yeah, I find opportunities to revitalize without displacement in the neighborhoods. The negative overtone of gentrification happens when the people that are making it a middle class or above aren't from the community and don't focus on, you know, making sure that there's some uh, intentional focus on preserving the residents that are there. Now, I did a, a crowdfund where we have over 1,500 investors that can all say they own a piece of the community. Some of them are long-term residents of the community that have been renting their entire lives. Uh, but we raised over a million dollars for these 18 houses and these two commercial buildings. We are in uh, a house that was built in 1925. We turned it into a short-term rental and we built for business purposes. We've had the principals use it for training for the teachers during the summer. It helps us generate between six dollars and $10,000 a month, uh, which helps me not have to raise the rents on the residents in the back. Uh, this property behind me is a historic church in the community. Um, I'm honored to be able to give it a new life. The, the church has decided that they didn't need such a large campus anymore. What we're going to do with the property is we're going to remove the dome, and we're going to be repurposing this entire five-acre site into a mixed affordable housing apartment building. And uh, as you can look over to this side, the original sanctuary that was built in 1947 
we'll have uh, some remnants of it left so that we can pay homage to the legacy and the landmark that this was for the community. One form of wealth building is home ownership. This graph shows the significant difference in the percentage among white, black, and Hispanic homeowners. But even after buying that home, there is an uphill battle black homeowners face when trying to sell their property. Derek and Roshonda Ingram Harvey moved to Katy in June of 2021 looking for opportunity. Roshonda is an entrepreneur and interior decorator. Derek, a former first-round draft pick in the NFL where he played four seasons. He now owns a trucking company. I lived here before, went to college here. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, and he want, my husband wanted to start a business, so it was, you know, an opportune time for us to move. So it was a great place for us to come. Cost of living was less than it was there. And obviously, a lot of opportunity for his transportation business. So we decided this was a good move. They came from Prince George's County, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C., Derek's hometown. In 2018, the couple built their dream home there. Five bedrooms, 10,000 square feet, costing $1.1 million. Three years later, when they decided to move to Texas, they say they got a rude awakening. You had a house on the market in Maryland. What was the list price for the house? 1.25. And what was the appraisal for the house? 1.19. How much money did you lose? Um, about 60000 The couple says they were stunned. You know, all the hard work we put into the house and for them to come back as low as they did was like kind of like a slap in the face. We had a nice home. We knew that we could, we felt we could make the money from it. And not only that, we hadn't been there long, but we made a lot of upgrades and had put more than $300,000 into the house. So why did the appraisal come in under asking price? Roshanda explains what happened when the appraiser, a white woman, came to their home. Our appraiser walked into the house and walked out within like 15 minutes. She didn't even look at the house. Mind you, I, she had, you know, they request the original appraisal. So she did review the original appraisal. However, there were spaces that we had finished in the house as well that weren't on the original appraisal. And I went through that with her, but she didn't even stay. She said it would take two hours and she was there for 15 minutes. Why do you think she didn't stay longer? I think it was because we were black. The impression that I received, she was not rude to me. So I cannot say that she was rude, but I don't feel that she didn't believe that we had made the modification. So when we showed her all of our invoices and things like that, I almost feel that it was almost like, how did these black people afford to do these things? Or how did you guys get a million dollars and blah, blah, blah. You just bought this house. You've done all this work and you're about to sell it. The Harveys believe it wasn't just about them, but the makeup of the entire neighborhood. Prince George's County is predominantly black and is considered the wealthiest black county in the country. A major study indicates the Harveys may be right. Researchers at Freddie Mac, a government-owned corporation that buys mortgages, analyzed more than 12 million appraisals from 2015 to 2020 and concluded homes located in majority black, Latino, or Hispanic neighborhoods are significantly more likely to have appraisals submitted to Freddie Mac that are below the contract price when compared to homes in majority white neighborhoods. This was completely different. Then there's the story of Paul and Tanisha Tate Austin, a couple in California who sued their appraiser for lowballing the value of their home. The couple then did an experiment. They asked a white friend to pretend to own their home and hired another appraisal company to take a look. This time, the appraisal was nearly $500,000 higher. A judge recently said, 
the couple's lawsuit can move forward. Here you are, successful, accomplished, work hard, and it didn't matter. Nope. Nope. It did not matter. It was all about the color of our skin. And it makes you, like I said, it makes you feel like, why are we doing this? Like, is the American dream for me or is it only for people who don't look like me? Because the reality of it is I pay my taxes just like everybody else does. My husband pays his taxes just like everybody else does, um, you know, and we expect to be treated better. We're not asking for anything more than what anyone else would ask for. But fairness, I feel, is, is important. It's important to make people feel that their hard work, you know, we're out here doing it the right way. And we're still getting slapped in the face. Like, you know, like basically whatever, you know, it's not important because of how you look. And I don't think you can judge a person's character or their hard work or, you know, their just overall them as a person. You can't judge at all, but you definitely can't judge me because of the color of my skin because it's just the color of my skin. The Harveys say they didn't complain about the appraisal. They took the loss and kept on moving. I actually have empathy for the lady who appraised our house below. Because to be honest with you, she didn't know any better. She's doing what she was taught to do. Her own biases, and and whether it's racism or whatever it is, it's a showing of who she is as a person. It doesn't reflect upon me. But the problem is, for us, it didn't impact us as much because we're fortunate. That's not the case for other people. Black banks have shielded African-Americans from discriminatory practices for decades. And one of the few left is in the heart of Houston. I think everyone who has been in Houston any length of time in and around the Third War as a part of the African-American experience, yes, you are going to know about Unity Bank and its predecessor, Riverside National Bank. August 16th. 1963. Texas's first black-owned bank opened in the heart of Riverside Terrace. It was a momentous occasion. African-American customers wrapped around the building and by the close of the day had deposited $400,000 in checking and savings accounts. It was very difficult at that time for African-Americans to establish banking relationships with the banks, all of whom were located in downtown Houston. So a group of African-American businessmen and doctors formed a group with the intent of raising enough funds to create a bank. All the things that you need financial resources for were then now available to our community. The bank is a place where futures are decided based upon individuals, businesses having access to capital. Equal access. Consumers, small businesses, borrowers of all sizes that happen to be individuals of color. There are going to be challenges that remain, and we see that. It's documented. In the spring of 2022, Wells Fargo Bank was sued for racial discrimination in mortgage lending practices against its black customers. But interestingly, Unity tells us mainstream banks give back to black-owned smaller operations like theirs. And that support and attention has grown for what's happened in the greater community. After the George Floyd situation, and the attention began to focus on Black Lives Matter, I think a lot of people started thinking beyond that. Black businesses matter. And then a step beyond that, black financial institutions matter.
despite the economic hurdles black people have faced, many have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. Some of them are high profile, others are up and coming, and many of them are right here in Houston. We have excellent examples everywhere we look of African-American entrepreneurs who have said, I am doing this, I can succeed, and they've done it. Gerald Smith, CEO, philanthropist, trailblazer. He was the first black investment banker in Texas who went on to start his own investment firm, a company that now manages $5 billion with offices in Houston and New York. A man of humble beginnings, but he doesn't like to call it a rags-to-riches story. I would say that we were probably more on the poor side than the, you know, middle class or anything like that, but we didn't know the difference back then. We felt we were fine. He and his younger brother were raised in Houston's third ward by a single mother and his grandmother, Yura, an entrepreneur who gave him his first lesson in business at age nine. This is where he learned a lot of business, right? This is, this is where I learned about business. <laughs> uh, right on this corner here, my, my grandmother's drugstore was. It's now an empty lot. But Yura's drugstore on the corner of Hadley and Sampson was a popular neighborhood hangout where Gerald served food, sodas, and ice cream. This was really a wonderful neighborhood. And, you know, all the people in the neighborhood knew us because of my grandmother. And that's when the whole neighborhood back then would look out for you. Sure. The whole, it, was, it was really a tribe. Yeah. The old people would say, all right. I see you. Yeah, I see you. I'm going to tell your grandmother. <laughs> at age 12, he got his first paying job at a gas station. I worked there during the summer. I made $22 a week. And, uh, you, know, so, you know, you get on Fridays, you paid me my $22 in cash, and I thought I had gone to heaven. He graduated from Yates High School in 1968, went to Texas Southern, where he majored in business, earning straight A's while working full-time at Foley's department store downtown. After getting his degree, he stayed at Foley's, becoming a buyer in menswear. Then, call it fate, or luck, or both, he was at a champagne brunch with a client and others when he says a man he didn't know approached their table and invited everyone to his home. We pulled up to his house, circle driveway, and he had this Rolls Royce parked in front, and I'm saying, what the heck? And, you know, we go in, and we have a great time. And I asked him, what do you do? And uh, he says, I'm an investment banker. I said, okay, what's an investment banker? He began applying to investment firms and was eventually hired, starting out cold-calling banks, and he was good at it. Doing business by phone only, he says none of his clients knew he was black. Then his very best client insisted he come to a conference in Bermuda. Gerald says he reluctantly called the man. He said, well, Gerald, what's the problem? And I said to, to him, I said, well, I'm black. He said, you're what? I said, I'm black. And he said, Gerald, the reason why I'm inviting you to come to Bermuda is because you do a damn good job for me. So you get your on that plane and you come to Bermuda, okay? <laughs> so it was like, my whole burden, the burden of all these things I've been carrying all this time where I was afraid to let clients really see or know who I was, was totally lifted. 
1979, he became the first person of color hired by a prestigious investment firm on Wall Street. Eleven years later, he started his own firm, his offices on the 69th floor of Chase Tower, just a few short miles from the corner of Hadley and Sampson. Did I ever think I would be able to have, be in a position where, you know, I have you know, offices in Houston and in New York, you know, second homes and art collections and, you know, being able to do what, you know, we've been blessed to, to have. Uh, no, I never, I never saw that, 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 that far, but, and I never have taken it for granted either. We are the third generation of the family of the Ross family. It was established by our grandparents, Burnett and Helene Ross, in 1939. To be a black-owned business and, and to be as old of a uh, business, a staple in the community as we are, there's a huge appreciation for that. We hear it all the time when people ask us, how long have y'all been in business? And when we say over 80 years, they're astounded by that. We know a lot of people in the community. We know a lot of these families. They trust our service. When we say wealth, it's the ability to service families over and over and over again. Uh, that's how we continue to build wealth. The wealth for me is having families just appreciate what you do. Thank you for helping us during a, a difficult time in our lives. We just know that no one can do this better than we do. And it's because it's the heritage that we pass down from one generation to the next generation. Well, I am Jackie Adams, proud owner of Melodrama Boutique, and we are at Melodrama Boutique now. Located in the heart of Third Ward, and we're about to celebrate 20 years in December. People have been intentional about where they want to spend their dollar, and they spend their black dollar. It's like, I want to go, I look for, and I research the black-owned boutique, and I need to go by there, and I need to support her. Our favorite color, red. You love red. Love red, yeah. I think right now my whole thing is sustainability and just going and keeping doing what we've been doing because it's been working. And with this whole inflation and dealing with the economy, not making moves just based on, oh, because I've been in business 20 years, now it's time for me to do something. This is not the climate to me in jumping in and doing anything. 20 years in business, yes. Jackie may eventually expand her business, but has no plans to leave this part of Third Ward that's undergone quite the transformation. What did it look like 20 years ago? Well, they were digging up Alameda and creating the new roads and everything was kind of disheveled in a lot of construction when I came 20 years ago. By the time I opened, all of that was done. Today, the Almeda District is a destination for shopping, eating, and entertainment. Now, we have not just Black-owned businesses. I think people have noticed what happens and what's happening on Almeda, and people want a business and want to be a part of it. So the Greater Houston Black Chamber of Commerce was established as Houston's first African-American civic organization. As you can imagine, in 1935, there were issues that black Americans had to deal with at the time. And there were also business interests, because at that time, we were in the middle of segregation. So we had business owners, people that were interested in starting their own businesses, just like their white counterparts. So the chamber was formed to support them.
The G-Unity Business Lab is an entrepreneurship program, which is a partnership between Houston Independent School District, Horizon United Group, and Curtis 50 Cent Jackson's G-Unity Foundation. The 28-week program where we pay student interns to actually stay after school and start businesses. They've had entrepreneurship coaches come in throughout the year to just give them their expertise. Now they're into the incubator phase where they're preparing solely for the hustle tank where they will present their businesses to Curtis and other investors to solicit seed funding of a lifetime. In Case Nation, I am the CEO, which meaning, you know, I do all the thinking mostly. I make the decision of, about Case Nation. It, came, it turned out really excellent, and I'm very proud of us. Some things I learned about being in G-Unity and having a business um, is being consistent, you know, being dedicated to something, even, even though it's not out there yet, just believing in yourself and knowing that anything could be possible. When it comes to financial literacy, the most important thing is understanding how money works and the fact that you can make money work for you instead of having to work for it. Instead of only trading time for dollars, you can find things to, to put money into that will make money for you. Uh, whether that's stocks or crypto is very popular right now. Uh, real estate is one of the oldest vehicles uh, because once you buy it, uh, it's going to pay you over and over and over. The value is going to go up. I think we should have more focus on those uh, instrumental things because uh, you can learn how to balance a budget. You can learn how to save, put money in a savings account. But you know the way the economy works, putting money in a savings account can actually cost you money because the cost of everything else goes up and the savings account is not increasing at the same rate. So I think uh, more financial literacy on ways to put your money into things that make money so you're not dependent on your nine to five job. And so I was talking to, I had a lawyer on our show talking about estate planning. And she was saying, this is a way to set up and pass generational wealth. It's how wealthy families do it. And so they're not thinking about this 50 year period because that is, when you're talking about wealth, a small time period to build wealth. But what if you start thinking about 150 years? So you can overcome that previous 150 years. So with our family, we're going to start, try to build wealth. We're going to estate plan, and we're going to lift our family up. And then once we lift our family up, what can we do in our community? And for black communities, you have to take out so much debt, we have to take out more debt than any other community to go to college because of all the things that we have to overcome that we've already talked about. I wrote a book called Debt Free or Die Trying, How I Buried Myself $30,000 in Debt and Dug My Way Out by Age 30. Define the problem, establish a plan, build a budget, and trust the process. When it comes to learning about Juneteenth, you can easily find the history throughout Houston and Galveston, from historical markers, statues, and this latest tourist attraction, the Absolute Equality Mural. It includes major events and people in the quest for freedom. A look at the past, but also a look at the future. I think it's a moment for us to celebrate, to collaborate, to enjoy each other. Watermelon and red soda water. <laughs> that, I mean, that's what we heard, you know. Uh, that's, that's what you do. You celebrate cookouts, barbecues, that kind of thing. We were taught heavily about what the significance of Juneteenth. So I learned it at a very early age and continued to learn more about it as I became an adult. Today, because of the newfound popularity of Juneteenth, many more people are celebrating. Now, the one thing that we have to be careful of is the commercialization of the holiday. Celebrate with a purpose and also educate yourself about the history of why you're actually celebrating this day.
As you can see, the pursuit of economic equality is still ongoing. We've certainly come a long way, but still have a ways to go. In the end, it's up to all of us to continue educating one another. And that starts now.
Thank you. 